Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update Podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. Hi, I'm Kathy Ma. I'm Sean Fitzgerald. And I'm Tony Uphoff. Hey there, and welcome to the Thomas Industry Update Podcast. I'm Tony Uphoff. Today, I'm joined by Ben Schrag. Ben is a program director in the policy liaison at America's Seed Fund. And I gotta be honest with you, Ben, because you have one of the coolest jobs, let me give a little description before I ask you to flesh it out for me. As a congressionally mandated program, the fund awards $200 million annually to startups and small businesses to commercialize what's been defined as technically risky ideas while allowing founders to retain full control of their ventures. So I want to explore that a little more with you. But first off, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Tony. Flesh my description out just a little bit. Talk a a little more about how the fund was created. And if you can, please outline your journey to the position you're in today. Sure. Um, Yeah, so I'm, I'm an employee of the National Science Foundation. And the, uh, the National Science Foundation is a federal agency, part of the federal government, uh, that mostly focuses on funding basic research. So science and engineering, just trying to let folks understand the world better. So you may have seen uh, the first picture of a black hole. That was uh, something that we had, uh, we had funded recently. And people discovering the cosmos and uh, you know, biology and chemistry and physics and just, just, uh, just funding things to understand the universe. So um, within uh, this organization, which is about an $8 billion uh, agency, uh, our program you know, sits within this organization. And um, basically the idea is that in addition to asking all these basic research questions, that um, our agency wants to also help when a new technology or a new scientific discovery happens, is created based on basic research. Can we also support the process of getting it from the lab bench into the marketplace? And w- the way we do that is we fund startups to take the technology to market and to try to figure out if they can solve a problem with the new product or new service that they're building based on the new technology. Yeah, so that's that's the goal. Um, the program was created by the National Science Foundation, by folks at my agency back in the 70s. As a, as basically kind of a way to try to figure out how to help more of this federal research become real impactful things that consumers and taxpayers would see. And uh, it works pretty well such that Congress actually required this program across the whole federal government. So the, the program that I work in, you'll see versions of it across uh, about a dozen federal agencies doing similar things. Yeah, fascinating and, and exciting. Ben, how did you get into this line of work, if you will? So I, um, I, the first step was um, I was a grad student and I actually ended up starting a, a company, a startup with uh, one of my colleagues and my advisor, the researcher I was working with. Um, and so we actually were funded by this program. So the first time I heard about it was um, we were trying to build a new kind of piece of equipment for the semiconductor industry. And this program gave us our first outside funding. And so I, I, um, our company got off the ground because of it. And uh, I did that for six years. I got very um, passionate about the kind of startup life and, and tried to figure out how to do that well. And uh, was lucky enough where once uh, my startup time was over, I ended up um, moving directly here to the NSF to, to be on the other side and to try to help the next generation of startups. It's great. Yeah, I love it. Hey, if there is such a thing, take our listeners a little behind the scenes. What's a day in the life like for you? And, and you know, obviously you're looking at a lot of different uh, concepts that aren't yet companies and different things, but kind of describe what that looks like. Yeah, so um, it's a lot of um, 
a lot of reading and writing and a lot of talking on the phone. Um, really, um, we really operate at scale. We are the federal government, and so um, you know we think of this role as kind of like an investor role. We are trying to decide how to allocate money to the most promising new technologies. And so a big piece of that is, is talking to people and reading and trying to understand um, which are the most promising teams and the most promising technologies. We have a lot of um, experts we bring in. Uh, our, our agency has what we call a merit review, which is what scientists use to decide you know, what science is the best. So we bring in, similarly, um, scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs to help give us advice uh, in all these different areas that we fund. So there's a lot of work in kind of talking to those people, selecting them, getting their feedback. And then of course, we're talking to the entrepreneurs before they apply, uh, as they're being evaluated. And then if they get awards from us, then we work with them as they try to move their company forward. So it's a lot of communications and a lot of talking to smart people and trying to understand uh, how to make the right funding decisions. Yeah, Ben, ben in, some, in some cases, it's a, it's a venture capital-like model, and, and in other cases, I guess it would differ a little bit. Where, where are the differences, or are there? Yeah, so I mean, there, there are definitely similarities and differences. The differences are, first of all, that we don't have a direct return. We don't take a stake in these companies, so we don't have a board seat. We don't have a, a piece of the stock. Um, we don't have that direct impact, right? We don't get paid back uh, if, the funding, if the funding leads to success. Um, and the other thing that we can do is, you know, the goal here is to try to not replace venture capital, but to try to um, try to fund in the areas where venture capital maybe is not as effective. So a lot of times what we see these days is that um, venture capital tends, tends to not fund things that are either very technically risky, so uh, very, very um, technically thorny with new science. That's something where early stages of those types of companies, a lot of venture capitalists, the timelines don't make sense. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times venture capitalists don't want to fund like very, very early. So we try to fund very technically risky, very technically involved things. And we try to fund very early in the company. Uh, so we kind of have a similar, uh, process, but a very different thesis, if that makes sense. It, and Ben, I was kind of semi-joking around a little bit about the coolest job and the term technically risky. Unpack that a little bit for our listeners. What would fall? Is it is it just that it's more of a concept than a than a, a proven bit of science at that stage, or what 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 do you really mean by technically risky? We tend to what we look for is that if if the new product or service is something where the entrepreneur can look at us and honestly say. I'm sure this is going to work. I just need time and money, but if I get time and money, this product will work the way it needs to. If you can say that, you're actually not a good fit for our program. We're looking for the ones where they can say, look, I think I know what the product looks like, but there's this crazy biology I need to do, or I need my laser to be super powerful, and I need to make this material 10 atoms thick, or whatever it is, and, and I'm not sure if it'll work. And that's, that's, that's a lot of times the biggest reason why these companies are not yet attractive to investors, because that's a huge risk. Investors don't want to take that risk typically. But yeah, that's, that's the core of what we look for. That's kind of our sweet spot. As you know, Ben, our our, uh, our listeners and, and viewers are a cross-section across the manufacturing and industrial markets. Given your experience over the last decade, what what, what shifts or, or trends or innovations have you seen in the, in the industrial sector as you've worked with some of these uh, perhaps risky technologies or risky stage businesses? Yes, yeah, so we've seen a lot of um, a lot of innovations in computer vision and AI. So basically trying to automate a lot of times through um, computer vision, 
some of the processes of manufacturing, either alongside humans or in, you know, to try to automate things that humans are currently doing. Uh, so we have a, um, a company called Amp Robotics, which actually uses computer vision to automate recycling streams, to try to be able to figure out how to more efficiently recycle different waste streams. Um, that company is doing quite well. Uh, another company called Right Hand Robotics that's doing a better a robotic pick and place, which, as you know, is a major manufacturing um, operation. So that's one big piece. I think the other big piece, and there's a number of things we see, but another big um, trend we're seeing is that a lot more additive manufacturing, right? So most manufacturing traditionally is subtractive. You start with something and you machine it down. Uh, we've seen lots of companies trying to figure out how to make an, an additive manufacturing work in various industries. Um, so, for example, um, we have the, I think what I just read was the world's largest uh, 3D printed structure, which was built by a company called Branch Technologies. It's a huge 3D printer. It's this big 40-foot tall structure. Um, they have a few public structures in various um, places around the country. They have this huge, large uh, 3D printing technology. Um, we even have a company that's 3D printing genes. So instead of going and finding the right size of genes, they have a computer vision to take your measurements, um, and then they are able to just print the genes. Uh, this company called Unspun in the, in the Bay Area. So, so yeah, there's a lot of people trying to figure out new ways to manufacture. Uh, obviously, with additive manufacturing, there's more customization possible, and sometimes you can cut down the waste, which is a big deal for a lot of companies. Yeah, I love the examples. Um, on an upcoming podcast, we're going to have Paul Doherty, who was the uh, CTO for Accenture, and he wrote the book Human Plus Machine that you may ha have read or, or be aware of. It's about work in the in the era of, of AI, and they give some just really cool examples of, I guess I'd still uh, been put it in the category of emerging technologies, but that are really starting to transform what's happening. Take us on a journey of where you think, based on the things we know to be true today, like the rise of AI and machine learning and certainly additive manufacturing, any glimpse to things that you're maybe seeing that are on the slight horizon, perhaps, for manufacturing that you think might be impactful? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is a very humbling thing to try to do, <laughs> try to predict. Usually, you know, if you're able to do this successfully, you can make a nice living for yourself. So. Um, it's hard for me to predict exactly, um, and that's, I think, one of the things about our program is we don't try to pick and choose technologies. We try to create a very wide net that the smartest entrepreneurs can tell us what they're doing. And so, but I, but I think, you know, one thing that we're definitely seeing is um, with a lot of companies, a lot of these entrepreneurs, many of them are quite young, and they're from, a, you know, the generation, the millennial generation, and a lot of them are trying to basically create more sustainable solutions, right? So, for example, two of the big Two of the biggest materials on the planet that consume the most energy are um, steel and concrete. Those are, you know, huge markets, huge amounts of energy. And we have companies by trying to basically create both of those materials without any energy added, right, to kind of reduce the amount of energy and the amount of uh, global you know, greenhouse gas emissions. So we're seeing a lot of people trying to, a lot of companies trying to figure out how to more sustainably produce maybe not a new material, but an existing material in a more sustainable way. So I, th I feel like that is still uh, rising, that, that the precedence of that is rising. We also have, this is not a, a technology that's coming, but as you know, it's probably, it's probably almost here. It's a lot of companies doing um, alternative proteins, right? So um, meat uh, in, grown in the lab or things that are not meat, but that are meat substitutes through synthetic biology and things like that. 
So those are two things that we expect, I think, to continue to grow in, in prevalence. Super insights, Ben. I'll add just a little bit of data. You know, our, our core platform of thomasnet.com is the leading industrial manufacturing product and services sourcing platform. And to give you a sense of perspective, anything around what you would think of as more sustainable materials or manufacturing processes or related technologies or services has been booming on the platform for about the last four to five years. And interesting, food processing and food products at scale has over the last 18 months been a category of growth. So you're, you're uh, I don't want to call them predictions. We're not making investment advice here, but uh, I think your, your, uh, your observations are, are spot on. Hey, let's, let's bring it uh, a little closer to the fund itself. Can you share uh, some success stories from interesting you know, uh, startups or small businesses that uh, the, the fund was uh, involved uh, with? Yeah, so um, a couple that are older that are not from my era, but that I think your, your, uh, your listeners may know about, um, one is a company called Interlace. They developed LASIK eye surgery. Um, so there's kind of a, I like to bring up that example because it is very clearly a completely risky and disruptive way of doing things, right? It used to be that you used a knife to cut somebody's eye when you had to fix their eyesight. The idea of shooting a laser into it was obviously a very disruptive and different way of doing it. And of course, quite risky when it was first attempted. Boy, Ben, it'd be great if you could find that original pitch from the uh, entrepreneur, right? About, hey, I got this great idea. Yeah, I've got this laser. Let me tell you what I'm going to do with it. Yeah. Um, so that's one. Uh, another company that um, was kind of built on technology and now has made it quite big is uh, Qualcomm, uh, you know, which is now about an $80 billion company. So their, some of their core chip technology was funded by, by our program in the 80s. Um, more, recent, more recently, there's a couple companies that I think are, are relevant that are, they're still growing, right? So again, they're, they're still on their, on their path. Um, but one company is a company called Lucera Health. So we funded them in um, 2015 to try to develop a new kind of platform to, to make new kind of um, uh, diagnostics based on um, various infectious diseases. They had the first FDA approved at home COVID tests approved back uh, late last year. And so um, again, the idea of funding them and then five years later, they were positioned to, to be able to deal with COVID. That's the kind of investment we'd like to make because they, you know, they, they, they're ready when the, when the situation happens. Um, the other company that is, I think, relevant is a company called Ginkgo Bioworks. This is a company that um, builds organisms to act as, as little factories to basically produce. A, they, they program the organism to produce whatever material the customer wants them to produce. And so um, they've done this and they've produced all kinds of different things using this biological process. But the one thing that is relevant right now is they were actually on 60 Minutes two weeks ago talking about how they had tripled the amount of um, vaccine that is being able to be produced. Um, they're also helping to do the testing for the Massachusetts public schools to help kids get back to school. So this is like synthetic biology that's that's solving uh, current problems. Uh, very cool. Yeah. In those examples, Ben, the one the more near term, meaning more recent, what, what was it that that helped those? And I, I'm trying to, uh, to to help perhaps our listeners who might be in a similar vein. What did they what did they say or do that made them stand out? Because to your earlier point of something that's a, a risky, you know, they're kind of describing a future that's not quite here yet. How did they stand out? What, what techniques did they use to get your attention? We really try to look at the team. You know, these companies are so, are so young when we see them that there's not much 
track record yet. That's mostly just a people, a few people, and an idea. And so, uh, one of the things we really look closely at is the team. And um, with a lot of these companies, you have incredibly uh, talented individuals who are applying, right? So the Ginkgo Bioworks example I mentioned; these are PhDs from MIT, award-winning. Um, uh, experts in the area, the best people in the world in that technology area. So for us, having the, the, the technical whizzes leading the company is actually, I know there's some upsides and downsides to having technical people running the company, but that's a huge advantage for us because, you know, they're the ones who are going to be able to do that risky thing that we talked about. Um, so we try to look at that technical thing. And then the other thing that's really important around the team is just there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of intangibles and it's hard to pick them out and, and tell you, you know, exactly how to find them, but you kind of know them when you see them. And so this is things like passion and grit and um, coachability and intellectual curiosity and integrity. Um, just talking to folks and, and hearing how they're thinking about the company and, and understanding if they're the kind of people you want to put your bet on. Um, and so this is not unique to us. All, I think all investors do that. Um, but we really try to figure out is this team gonna, you know, run through walls to get this done? Are they gonna understand when they're when there's a something they need to change and when they're doing something wrong? Are they gonna be honest with themselves? Yeah, great, great to illuminate those, Ben. I, I do some advising with early stage companies and and startups, uh, you know, occasionally, and I oftentimes talk about emotional stamina, of saying, you know, what 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 you're embarking on is a, you know, this is a really difficult, challenging slog. And we tend to only hear about the end result when it works. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it can be a real challenge. And I think people that, that have that ability for emotional stamina do well in those environments. They don't get too high you know, on the, on the good days. They don't get too low on the bad days. And they're able to hang in over the, uh, over the process. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Paul Graham, who started Y Combinator, which is maybe the most successful um, startup accelerator, he looks for five things in his founders and the people who start the companies. And one of them is ignorance. And he says ignorance basically of how hard it's going to be. Because if they if they knew how hard it was going to be, they just they wouldn't be up for it. Right. So I think that's part of the emotional uh, piece that you talked about, for sure. You got it. Yeah, I'm going to remember that one. I had not heard it before. But uh, hey, so let's let's uh, help entrepreneurs who, who might be listening or perhaps people who want to back an entrepreneur or, or guide an entrepreneur. Uh, what are the tips you give them about looking to apply to the program? And by the way, Ben, we're going to include a link, you know, to the to the description to help people out and that kind of stuff in the podcast and the show notes. So don't worry about that. But just what are maybe three tips you might give an entrepreneur looking to apply to the program? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is don't um, don't wait too long. A lot of folks, um, I think it is sometimes challenging to work with the government. You know, we're, we're different from a normal investor in that sense. Um, but we really do fund companies quite early. In fact, in many cases, they, they haven't started doing anything yet. They're just thinking about the idea. And that's okay. That's like, that's a stage at which we'll, we'll risk. So first of all, don't, the company should not think they need to be, you know, have everything figured out already. So we really are a pre-seed stage investor in that sense. That's number one. Um, number two is to basically, um, basically um, think about us really as trying to align our funding with their vision. We do have a certain kind of company we look for, but it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be a company that helps the government directly. 
right? So a lot of a lot of government agencies, you know, it is true that if you if the, if the agency itself is not going to be a user of the technology, that they won't fund it. Our goal is to fund these companies to realize their vision, not our vision, right? Our, our, we want to help them out. We want them to bring us their vision, and we want to align our funding with them. So. So to understand that we actually think of very, we actually fund companies very broadly across lots of areas that they might not think the government is interested in. Um, and the third third thing is more tactical. We have a really um, I think a fairly painless way for companies to figure out if they might be a good fit, so they don't have to go through a lot of hoops at the beginning. And that's called the project pitch. So basically, what it is is they go to our website. There's a web uh, portal there. They enter some information about. You know, who's the a paragraph about the team, a paragraph about the technology, maybe a paragraph about, you know, what problem they're going to solve and something about the, um, the work that they're going to want us to fund. So what, what you need to do next. The total thing is about two pages in total, and it's submitted online. And we re typically respond within a couple of weeks to give them either, OK, this is not a good fit and here's why. Or this might be a good fit, and here's how to here's how to take the next step, and here's some feedback about what you need to, to think about, and then they they have a response. And the nice thing about that process is the the person who was going to respond to them and tell them that they're a good fit is the program director, is one of my colleagues who's actually going to make the funding decision of their of their proposal. So now they have a person they can talk to and to help them through the process a little bit. So I would encourage folks to do that process. You're not going to you're not going to burn any bridges if you if you do that process now and maybe you're not ready yet, but go to that go to the site, submit a pitch and just get a sense about whether you're a good fit. I think it's a pretty uh, there's not a lot of cost to that. It's great advice, Ben. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thomas Industry Update podcast. To hear the rest of my conversation with Ben Schrag, check out the extended video cut now available on YouTube and linked in the show notes of this episode.